Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah, and to his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. To Ram was born Amemadad, and to Amemadad, Nation, and to Nation, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah, and to Abijah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and to Jehoshaphat, Joram, and to Joram, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham, Ahaz. And to Ahaz, Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh, Ammon. And to Ammon, Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Sheltiel, and to Sheltiel, Zerubbabel. And to Zerubbabel was born Abahad, and to Abahad, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor. And to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Aluad. And to Eluid was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, Fourteen generations. You see, as we begin expositing a new book, the book of Matthew and his gospel, we should should understand that all of Scripture, the golden thread that runs through every book of the Bible, is none other than the book testifies to the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 44, that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all speak of him, and all must be fulfilled. Jesus truly is the theme of the Bible. And as we look at this today, you might think throughout this message, well, how much real application is there? Well, let me tell you this. It is vitally important that we understand what is said here, and, and that which is conveyed here is magnificent. The Lord wants us to praise His name. The Lord wants us to understand that He is the God that spans all the generations. He has ordained the end from the beginning. We are redeemed because of this blessed fact. Through all these multiple generations here, all leading up to the birth of the Messiah. In these gospel accounts here, you have uh, three, uh, what's called the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they each have their emphasis. 
Well, what's the emphasis of these uh, gospel accounts? Well, Mark's emphasis is that it was written to the Romans. Luke's emphasis in his gospel account was written to the Gentile nations, the Greeks. And Matthew's gospel, what's the purpose there? The purpose, his goal, is to persuade the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah. That's his goal. There is a significant Jewishness about Matthew's gospel account. And at least 40 formal quotations are introduced in Matthew's account, such as that which was spoken so that it might be fulfilled. In Matthew's account, the great emphasis is upon the prophetic office of Jesus. Jesus is the promised prophet that Moses referred to. I want us to turn to Deuteronomy 18, because the emphasis in Matthew's Gospel account is going to be on the prophetic role, particularly of Jesus Christ. But take a look at that promise be 18, verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Century after century after century after century will go by. But God doesn't forget his prophetic word. And in due time, the great prophet, Jesus, will come to which this is spoken of. We'll take a look later on at several passages in Acts that confirms the fact that is who Moses was referring to. This is the only gospel, Matthew's gospel account, where the term, the king of the Jews, is not reserved to the end of the book, like in Mark, Matthew, I mean Mark, and, and Luke, and John, Actually, it's it's mentioned at the first part of his book. Again, the emphasis that he's stressing is Jesus is the king of the Jews. And the command we see also in this, that is the only gospel account where Jesus issued the command to his disciples while he was with them prior to his crucifixion, only to go to the lost sheep of Israel and not to go to the Gentile world. That command to go to the Gentile world will be after he has been raised from the dead and ascended. Jesus only ministered to the lost uh, sheep of Israel himself. Of all the gospel accounts, Matthew is the most Jewish of all of them. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul took the gospel to the Jews, and went in wherever he went, the first place he would go would be to the synagogue. Why? As we mentioned when we preached through Romans. Remember, Romans says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Israel was the covenant people of God. And therefore, they were to receive the good news first. And Paul always took that good news first to the Jews until it got to the point 
that they would receive it no more. And finally, Paul says, we will leave you and we will go to the Gentiles who will receive the word. So national Israel would refuse to heed the message of the gospel that Paul preached to the Jews. The apostolic preaching was emphasizing that at the outset. We even know from the book of Acts, and we've made mention of this when we went through Corinthians, that the, uh, the mighty Apollos in Ephesus was sent to Corinth. And what was he? Uh, we know from the scriptures it says that he was a man mighty in the scriptures. He just wasn't aware of all the recent developments in, the, in biblical revelation that Aquila and Priscilla, like the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, he had to be informed of that. But he was a man, the Scripture says, mighty in the Scriptures. And they sent him to Corinth, and he will have a great ministry in Corinth, to the point that many look to him as their founding father in the faith. And we're told in Acts 18 that he went into the synagogues and daily refuted the Jews publicly, proving, here's what Apollos proved, as what Matthew is seeking to prove, that Jesus is the Messiah according to the Scriptures. And so we see that national Israel, they had uh, the apostles come to them. Jesus will come to them. And we're going to see in, in Matthew's account, Jesus will say to the Jews, to the Jews. He says, judgment will come upon you because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. The Messiah had come. And they rejected it. And they will pay a terrible price for rejecting their Messiah. So, the goal of Matthew is to win the Jews to Christ. That's his emphasis. And while one would think it would be obvious, necessary to take the gospel to the Jews, we have among us today, unfortunately, some that we call Christian Zionists and who really have a heretical view that I'm about to tell you. And one of the most prominent speakers our advocates of that position is uh, the pastor, John Hagee, of the Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas. Now, to show you, let me just quote to you what he repeated in 1988 to the Houston Chronicle. Here's what he said. And he's not alone in this. Quote, I'm not trying to convert the Jewish people to the Christian faith, he said. There is nothing in the night to honor Israel that does that. In fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. The Jewish person who has his roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. There is no form of Christian evangelism that has failed so miserably as evangelizing the Jewish people. They already have a faith structure. Everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha'i, needs to believe in Jesus, he says. But not Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity, he says. The Jewish people have a relationship to God through the law of God as given through Moses, Hagee said. I believe that every Gentile person can only come to God through the cross of Christ. 
I believe that every Jewish person who lives in the light of the Torah, which is the word of God, has a relationship with God and will come to redemption. The law of Moses is sufficient enough to bring a person to the knowledge of God until God gives them greater revelation. And God has not, said Hagee, given interpretation of Romans 11.25. Paul abandoned the idea of Jews knowing Christ. In the book of Romans, he said, I am now going to the Gentiles from this time forward. Judaism doesn't need Christianity to explain its existence. But Christianity has to have Judaism to explain its existence. I'm not the only one that understands that as being heretical. You can read where he has taken just monumental hits from all sections of Christendom that says we cannot believe that you actually believe that the Jews don't need Jesus. Well, I guess someone should have told Matthew. Well, Matthew's whole gospel account is the Jews need Jesus. The Jews need their Messiah. They need to trust in Jesus. There is no hope for them apart from Christ. And Matthew understood that that necessity of bringing the gospel to the Jews. And so his purpose at the outset of his gospel account is that he opens with a family ancestry of Jesus. And he is um, going to reach the Jews, and he is going to trace Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham and not to Adam. It's interesting. If you go to Luke's account, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam. Matthew doesn't. He just goes to Abraham. Now, why? Again, the purpose of of Matthew is to persuade the Jews that that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the true seed of Abraham that was promised. He is the great prophet that Moses referred to. And so his emphasis here in going back only to Abraham in the genealogical ancestry is for that purpose to prove to the Jews Jesus' lineage. Now, in this regard, the Jews saw their relationship to Abraham as very important. To be considered a physical Jew uh, descendant was viewed by many Jews as proof in and of itself that they were all right with God. The fact that they were just descendants. Jesus, in John 8, has to deal with the Jews. He says, everybody who believes in me, that that you have to believe in me in order to be saved. And the Jews argued with him and said, uh, Jesus said, everybody who commits sin is the slave of sin. And those Jews with them said, We're the seed of Abraham. There's nothing wrong with us. John the Baptist meant the same thing, did he not? When he was calling the nation to repentance. And uh, John the Baptist sees uh, the Pharisees and the scribes coming to him. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 3. He said, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, well, we're of the seed of Abraham. 
Of course, John will say, really? You're the seed of Abraham. He says, God can raise up the seed from these rocks. You're not of the seed of Abraham, even though you can trace your ancestry back to Jesus. And so we see here, with all this being said, all those Jews who thought everything was okay, what did 1 Corinthians 10 say about them? It says all of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea, the whole nation. But then a few verses later, does it not say that God was displeased with how many? Most of them. Most of those who came out of Egypt fell in the wilderness. And Hebrews 3 says they fell because of unbelief. Though they were the covenant people of God, though they were referred to as the sons, the son of God, in that sense, covenantally, he says they did not have a personal relationship with the living God. And most of the nation fell. Most of those who could trace their physical lineage to Abraham did not, as Scripture says, God says, I swore in my wrath they will never enter the land of Canaan. And so, with all this said, the Scripture does place a great importance upon Jesus being, as it says here, the seed of Abraham and simultaneously the seed of David. And so there's a good reason why Matthew begins starting with stating that Jesus Christ is both the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? Because the scripture promised that the Messiah would be from the seed of Abraham and would be from the seed of David. So in order to convince the Jews... That Jesus is the Messiah, it was important for him to demonstrate that Jesus is of the seed of Abraham. And that he also would sit on the throne of David forever. Now, one of the most thrilling things is we're going to see here, and, and as I said earlier, you say, well, what is going to be all the practical application of, of this message is for you to glory in the fact that God will bring to pass every scripture that was prophesied concerning the Messiah. <coughs> every scripture will come to pass. And as we go through the next several chapters, we're going to see how thrilling it is and how God manipulates history so that it comes out exactly like God prophesied that it would. Before I get into some of these magnificent passages concerning both these uh, lineages of Abraham and David, let me just mention something about the genealogical record here. As we're told in uh, Matthew 1, verse 17, there were three sets of 14 generations from Abraham to Christ. Totaling, of course, 42 generations. And without getting into discussion on the validity of the chronology of the Bible based on the listing of the generations, this is all I'm going to say. Believe the Bible and forget about evolutionary things. The Bible is true 
when it talks about the generations. It's only because in the 19th century, with the onset of Darwinism, that the chronology and the genealogies began to be questioned. It's only because of that. Before that, it was virtually unquestioned concerning the timetables in the scriptures. As one looks at the human genealogy of Jesus, in his human nature, we are compelled to see that Jesus' human ancestry contains a lot of sinners in here. And if you know something, I'll point out some of this. If you haven't already understood, <clears throat> this ancestry of Christ contains obviously sinners and even the wicked. The scripture affirms that Jesus obtained a real human nature from his mother Mary. And as the scripture says, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh without sin himself. As I've mentioned before, in the God-man we have the union of the God-nature, the divine, and the human nature. Two distinct natures in one person forever is the Orthodox Creed. And the divine nature, we've mentioned this before, <clears throat> called the hypostatic union of the two natures. The divine nature, the God, the God nature in the person Jesus watched over his human nature so as to keep his human nature falling into any sin. Because he did inherit a true human nature from his mother Mary, a sinner. So in the listing of Jesus' ancestry, there are some very evil names mentioned here. If you go, if you understand biblical history, you're going to see, for example, kings Joram, Ahaz, and Ammon were wicked kings. But Jesus came through their line. Even in the listing of the godly ones. The Bible is forthright, isn't it, in portraying men as they really are? Even these godly men, they had their weaknesses, did they not? We begin, just think of uh, tracing all the way back to Abraham. We begin with Abraham. <clears throat> he is a hero in the scriptures. He's a man that believed in the promises of God. Even when he was, it says, good as dead. He is the father of faith. But even Abraham had his weak moments, didn't he? When his wife Sarah who was his half-sister, when he would go and King Abimelech, he told people, told Sarah, well, tell him, I'm, uh, you're my sister, not my wife, because he feared they would kill him, because his wife was beautiful. That was a weak moment in this great man. He was a sinner, saved by grace. We know David's great sins, do we not, of um, adultery and murder. We know the, uh, the great faithfulness, but the, the wisest human that has ever walked on this earth outside of Jesus was Solomon. And yet we know from Solomon, he fell into grievous sins and introduced into Israel pagan worship through his foreign wives. The line from which Jesus came. 
And then in verse 3 here, we see that to Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if there was ever a, a sad story in the scripture, it was this. Tamar's husband had died. Uh, in the scripture, uh, one of these laws were called the law of the leveret marriage. And if a man died without a male error, the leveret marriage required that his brother, one of his brothers marry his widow and raise up a male seed. And that was Tamar's condition. Well, it said that God had to kill Tamar's wicked husband. Onan was the the brother-in-law, and God expected him to raise up, but Onan refused to do it, so God killed Onan. And now Tamar is without this male heir, heir that is. And we're told in the scriptures in this regard that Tamar goes out and uh, one of uh, Judah's uh, sons is to be the one that would raise up the godly seed. So Tamar puts a veil over herself and goes out to where she, she uh, well, Judah's son is going to be, but he doesn't do anything. Well, the problem is uh, Judah's wife had died. He thinks she is a common prostitute and goes and lays with her. All right, this is Judah. And, of course, Tamar, he doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law. And she was smart enough to, uh, he says, what are you going to pay me for being the common prostitute? Well, she got from him a signet ring and a cord. And later on, when she is pregnant, the word gets back to Judah that Tamar has played the harlot. Well, Judah says she deserves to die, being a harlot. Well, before she dies, she goes, let me show you something. And shows him his signet ring. Uh-oh. I'm the man. Then you're pregnant with my children. And that's Perez and Zerah. Through this sordid story is the line of the Messiah, the God-man. This is through whom he's coming. We see in this, <clears throat> this regard, talking about Judah, and that, that the Messiah would come with Judah. I, I just want to direct your attention to Genesis 49. Turn to Genesis 49 and look at verse 6. Actually, I want to look at verse 10, not verse 6, Genesis 49, uh, beginning at, let's begin at verse 8, verse 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people.
He didn't come through the firstborn. It came through Judah. Judah is this royal line to whom the Messiah would come. This Judah who I just told you about and all of his sin is the one to whom the Messiah is being prophesied here. Jesus is that lion's well. He is the one that says that will be given the scepter and that between his feet uh, he shall rule and all the peoples will obey him. And so what we see, the the reality of Jesus' human ancestry, what does it do? It magnifies the blessed truth that the Son of God came into this world and he took on our human nature and he passes through a lineage of humans who were very tainted, some very wicked, and even among the godliest of them, great weaknesses in their sins. And this is the lineage to whom the Son of God comes into this world. Now, brethren, if there is anything to teach you that salvation is not by works but by grace, just look at the ancestry of Jesus. And there you have it. As we shall see in Matthew one twenty one, it states that the very name of Jesus is that he will save his people from their sins. I've pointed out in other messages that Jesus, he had to have a body like us in order to redeem us. There was no other way. No other way but to assume a human nature like us. Adam was a real man. Adam fell into sin. Therefore, the way that God would save us is that there had to be someone, as Hebrew says, Thou hast given me a body to do thy will, O God. A body to do what? A body to keep the law perfectly every day of his life, and a body to pay the terrible transgression for our sins. It had to be, the Son of God had, had to be a real human, had to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, came through this lineage of sinners, and yet he was without sin. The next week I'm going to demonstrate the amazing work of God, of how God fulfilled the prophecy while overcoming the obstacle of the Messiah coming through one of Solomon's evil descendants by the name of Jeconiah. Just to give you a taste, I want you to turn to to Jeremiah chapter 22. And look at verses 29 and 30. O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down, childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Christ, the seed of David, must be virgin-born, and yet he must have a legal right to the throne of David to be the Messiah. How can Jesus get this legal right to David's throne with this immense roadblock created by Jeconiah's sin? No descendant of yours will sit on the throne of David. 
you're going to have to wait till next week. And it's a marvelous way of how God orchestrates history so that Jesus comes through the line of David despite Jeconiah's sin. And we'll see how God works that out. Well, let's talk about Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David. The Messiah will and must come from these two great covenant lines of Abraham and David. First of all, if you notice how Matthew begins, he talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He mentions Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to talk about his name, Jesus Christ, and its significance. The very name of Jesus is significant. Our English word Jesus is really a Latin form of the word Jesus. This was in turn a Greek form from the word Yeshua, which is a contracted form of the word Jehoshua. Jehoshua means Jehovah is salvation. That's what the word means. And in the shortened version, Yeshua, the stress is on the verb form, which means he will certainly save. This is all that's wrapped up in the meaning of the name Jesus. As we already mentioned in verse 21 when we get to it, the angel tells Joseph about Mary, about Mary and the child that she's carrying. It's the angel who tells Joseph what to name the child. He says, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what you will name this child. Added to the, this name Jesus is the term Christ. This is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. So when you read about the Messiah in the Old Testament, the Greek form of the Messiah is the term Christ, meaning the anointed one. And the anointed one means that he is set apart to a special task. What's the special task the anointed one is set apart to do? Namely, to redeem his people from their sins. Now let's take a look for a moment at this threefold office of Jesus Christ, and it is important. First of all, he was our chief prophet. So in the catechism questions, we talk about Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king in order to save us from our sins. Well, we're already taking a look at Deuteronomy 18.15, where it talks about this great prophet to come, and to show you that, uh, that the New Testament is not stretching when it talks about Jesus is this great prophet, turn with me to Acts chapter 3, look at verse 22. And remember, the New Testament writers, they're inspired, right? Peter's inspired. Acts 3.22 says, Moses, now Peter has been preaching this sermon to those Jews who had crucified Jesus. And he says in verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. He's referring to Deuteronomy at this point. 
Not only Peter understands that correlation. Turn over to Acts 7 and see what Stephen, in his great recounting of the history of Israel, what Stephen says before they stoned him to death. Look at Acts 7, verse 37. He says, This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So Peter is saying to those Jews who crucified Jesus, you don't understand who you were crucifying. You were crucifying the great prophet that Moses spoke of. Stephen is speaking to those Jews, and he's saying, you don't understand who you crucified. He's the great prophet that Moses spoke of. So he was anointed to be the great prophet to speak the word of God to us. He was also anointed to be our only high priest. Turn, first of all, to Psalm 110. Now, I'm going to begin at verse 1, but the emphasis is on verse 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Thy youth are to thee as the dew. Then verse 4. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This Lord who would sit at the Father's right hand, is as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is that, Jesus is that great high priest. And to confirm that in the New Testament, turn to Hebrews 10. And look at verses 12 and 14. Well, back up to verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having suffered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, uh, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus was anointed to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a kingly priest. Well, not only was he anointed to be the great prophet and the, the only high priest to save us from our sins, he was anointed to be a king. Turn to Psalm 2, verse 6. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And to see that this was a reference to Jesus, turn with me to Luke's account in Luke 1, verse 33. Let's back up to verse 30, where the angel speaking to Mary is carrying Jesus. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign 
over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus anointed to be the promised king of the Jews. The ultimate king, not only the king of the Jews, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So together, the name Jesus Christ is a glorious name filled with all of this wonderful understanding of what it means to redeem men from their sins. And the only one who could do it. Well, not only is Jesus promised to be of the seed of David, he is said to be of the seed of Abraham. Now, the whole purpose, again, of Matthew's account was to what? Persuade the Jews that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, tracing back and that he is the one to whom Abraham spoke. So, Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Look at verses um, 4 through 6. Now we understand in this context that Abram is concerned that while he's childless, and will there be an heir to him? And he thought Eliezer of Damascus would be his heir, and God says, no, it's not going to be him. He says, it's going to be one who comes from your own body. Now remember, Abraham, as Roman says, he's a hundred years old, always says, as good as dead. Sarah is 90 years of age, beyond the years of childbearing, even in those times, and she's never had a child. And God says... This to Abram, verse 4, or verse 5. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned, that is, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This man who has no child. From his own flesh, your descendants are going to be more numerous than these stars. Really? You know, when it came, when the word came to Sarah, it says she laughed that she would bear a child. Of course, God was that angel of the Lord coming to her. He said, well, I didn't laugh. He said, no, yeah, you laughed. I saw you. <laughs> the angel of the Lord's God. I saw that you laughed. You think it's funny. He says, no, you're going, you, from here you're going to have a child. This time next year when I come back, you're going to be with child. We're turning to Genesis 22. When, now the magnificent thing here is, when Isaac is finally born to Abraham and Sarah at their old age, this is the promised one, right? The line to whom will come. What does God say? I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys. And he's ready to do it. The scripture says he would have done it because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. And when uh, the Lord stopped him from killing Isaac, it says the Lord provided the sacrifice. And this is what the Lord said to Abraham in verse 17. 
Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and you, your seed, shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Not only is your seed going to be numerous, but through your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Really? Turn to Galatians 3. You know, I don't know about you as we go through this. You might think this is kind of mundane. We're going through passage the Old Testament, New Testament. Let me tell you something. When I was a young Christian, and some of these things I was discovering on myself, you talk about someone getting excited. I was getting excited. I said, you know, this Bible is for real. This is Incredible stuff. God prophesied something long ago and all this comes to place. And I look at this passage and I go, wow, that fits together. That's amazing. Well, take a look at Galatians 3. Let's begin at verse 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I was talking about Genesis 15. We already take a look at it. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So when I just read Genesis 22 to you, it says, This seed that will be numerous, and they will occupy the gates of their enemies, In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The New Testament says the gospel was preached to Abraham at that point. So those that tell us, no, the gospel is the New Testament, they have overlooked Galatians 3 at this point. The gospel was preached in shadow form to Abraham. And then if there is any question about Who is the seed of Abraham? Look at Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Christ. Now, in the scriptures, in Genesis, I mean, Galatians 3, there is a singular aspect to the seed of Abraham. There's a plural aspect. The singular aspect is the fact that Jesus is that promised one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's Jesus. And everybody who believes that is of the the faith of Abraham is said to be in Galatians 3.29. Take a look. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. And then, if that doesn't, not convincing enough, turn to John 8. Look at verses 56 through 59. Jesus is speaking with these Jews, and then he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they go, what? The Jews therefore said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham. 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, Yahweh, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, why did they want to kill him by simply saying that? When Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he was alluding to what God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, Who shall I say has sent me? Tell them, I am has sent you. Uh, the, the Jews would never mention the name Yahweh because they didn't want to break the third commandment of profaning, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. So they would never mention even the name. They'd come up with Jehovah. So Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. In other words, oh, we get what you said, Jesus. You just claim to be Jehovah. That's blasphemy. And you need to die by being stoned to death. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Abraham did rejoice to see his day because Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, after all. Not only was Jesus the Messiah from the seed of Abraham, I'll develop this more next week, but he was said to also be of the seed of David. And actually, it's through David that Jesus receives his rightful kingship and that the family of Abraham uh, receives Let's say it's royal lineage because Jesus not only is of the seed of Abraham, he's of the seed of David. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 12 to verse 17. Now, this is the inauguration, by the way, of the Davidic covenant. And here's what it says. When your days are complete, now this is what the priest was saying to David. He's speaking to David. And he says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed him before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, first of all, he talks about a descendant of David coming up upon which his kingdom will be established forever. 
Now, we're going to see, this is an obvious allusion to Jesus. We'll prove that further in a moment. We'll get into it more next week. But, did Jesus ever sin? No. Well, who, who built, historically, the house that David wanted to build? Solomon is the one who wanted to build that uh, David wanted to build it, but because that he was a man of bloodshed, God says, you'll never build my house. But it will be Solomon who will build the temple of the Lord. So when it talks about, uh, <clears throat> I will be a father to him, and when he commits iniquity, sin, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Solomon. Solomon was the historical context who will build the temple of the Lord, but was a sinner because he was a mere man. And the uh, sins that he committed, we've already mentioned, he let his foreign wives uh, lead his heart away from Jehovah for a time. But because his name is Solomon, which means, by the way, beloved of God. It says that God would, re, would bring him back, would restore him. But you see, there was a greater one always in picture who would come through Solomon's line, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Now turn with me to Acts 2. We've looked at this several times. Let's start at verse 29, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of who? The resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh suffered decay. This Jesus God raised up again, that we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, and he will quote Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, Jews. So who is the ultimate one that 2 Samuel was looking towards? Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate one that would sit on the throne. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Psalm 110 was always referencing. Of which Jesus, we're going to see, confuses the Pharisees when they, you know, they were always coming up to trap Jesus, trying to. But you know, when you try to trap the living God, you're going to always be on the losing end because he's not smarter than anybody. So when they were trying to trap Jesus, Jesus says, i got a question for you. When David says that 
that the Messiah would be the son of David, yet calls him Lord. How does he do that? How does he? How is he the son of David and yet David's Lord? You want to answer that for me? And when Jesus asked that, it says the Pharisees, they did not ask him any more questions. They had no answer for it. Well, it, it, the answer is he's the God-man. In his humanity, he's of the descendant of David, but he is David's Lord because he's the Son of God. So you see, in this genealogy of Jesus, this ancestry, the stress is placed upon the fact he is from the seed of Abraham and he is from the seed of David. And this Messiah would pass through this lineage for all these generations, 42 generations from Abraham, many of which we said were evil men. Even Rahab the harlot, the Canaanite woman, she is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. He has come into this world to save sinners. And, and you see what the Jews never could bring themselves to understand. As we, when we get to Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, and Caiaphas says, just tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Just tell us. When he says, your words have spoken it well, he says, well, then you blaspheme. We don't need to hear anymore. You see, they understood that the Messiah must be the Son of God. They had no idea that he would be a real man. And real God at the same time. And therefore, they stumbled over the cornerstone. And Matthew's gospel account is a wonderful account of how God will take all these prophecies and say, this is Jesus. It points to Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You should have believed in Jesus. And Jesus comes to him to the temple, and he says, How I would have gathered you like a mother hen under my wings, yet you would not come. And he wept over Jerusalem. Only in Matthew's town is Jerusalem called the holy city. The holy city will be decimated by Jesus in 70 A.D. You did not recognize the day of your visitation. Matthew is trying to persuade the Jews This Jesus is truly the Messiah. Let us pray.